This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachrin, and you're listening to the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Michelle Chihara, Editor-in-Chief and Annie Burke, Film Editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Michelle and Annie, thank you so much for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Of course. You know, I, I thought I, I would just like to to jump right in it. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about the Los Angeles Review of Books. So, Michelle, I was wondering if you could just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what the, the LA Review of Books is for those who have uh, never heard of it before. The Los Angeles Review of Books is an online magazine, a print magazine, a radio hour, a publishing workshop, uh, an indie lit festival, and a number of other public programs. Um, but primarily, we are the magazine, the online magazine, the quarterly journal, and the radio hour. Um, and we've been around for a mere 10 years, just over 10 years. I guess we're into the 11th now. Uh, and I am very new as the editor-in-chief. I was a section editor for economics and finance starting in 2016. But I am the editor-in-chief only starting this month. Uh, and, you know, in addition to, to having recently become editor-in-chief, I was wondering if you could just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your your background and history and, and how you found yourself uh, in this role. Sure. Just after college, for seven years, I was an online editor, freelance writer, and reporter, primarily for um, a couple of alt-weekly newspapers, um, the New Haven Advocate and the Boston Phoenix. Uh, Then I uh, decided to sell everything I owned, move to Rio de Janeiro, and train Capoeira, which is a Brazilian martial art and dance form uh, in the favela. So I did that for a year, but I also did some stringing for newspapers came back to the States, did some more journalism. My last job in journalism was at Mother Jones. And then I decided to go back to graduate school. I got my MFA in fiction and then my PhD in English literature from UC Irvine. And uh, I did, I actually worked while I was there. I taught in the literary journalism program and was kind of generally interested in all things journalism as a matter of course. Um, and then uh, I was a postdoc at Whittier College and then a professor of English there for almost a decade after that. And it was while I was at Whittier as a professor that I got involved with the, the LA Review of Books crew. Um, my research is uh, literature and economics and media studies, is the way I would characterize it primarily. Um, but it was doing the lit and econ and kind of thinking about ideology critique and uh, those those issues that I got 
into doing the economics and finance section for the LA Review of Books. And I was not, I was very much not um, the standard issue economics editor at the LA Review of Books, uh, which is part of how I came on board here. Um, it was a place that was very welcoming to heterodox engagements of all types. Yeah, I'd love to, uh, you know, soon follow up on, on you know, the, the type of content that appears uh, in uh, on the website in the magazine. Uh, but before that, uh, Annie, I'd love if, if you could uh, introduce yourself. I know uh, listeners might be familiar, li- listeners of New Books and Film will probably be familiar with you. But uh, for those who aren't, uh, could you t- tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. This is a crossover episode. Uh, I'm Annie Berg. Um, I am a host on New Books and Film. I edit much of, I mean, except for some of the film coverage, which is covered by other editors, because there's a lot of sort of, like you say, like um, interdisciplinary heterodoxical work happening there. Uh, so I don't want to take credit for all, but a lot of the really great film coverage at, um, on the site and in the quarterly journal. Um, and I'm also the author of a book about women in 1950s television called Their Own Best Creations, uh, Women Writers in Post-War Television, which you can also listen to that after this interview is complete. Um, I was, I don't know where to start my journey. I In ninth grade, I wrote movie reviews. And I remember, no, but I remember like on the front page, it said like Annie Burke's top 10 movies of the summer. And I was like, I'm a freshman. No one even knows who I am. And they're tell, like, they're touting that like the seniors should know my top 10 movies of the summer. Um, so that was a lot, but I loved it. Uh, I thought I wanted to work in the movie industry. Uh, I didn't and neither the industry didn't want me either. I went to graduate school shortly after the global financial crisis. I did a PhD in American Studies and Film Studies at Yale University. And then I taught for a few years um, as a professor at Hollins University in Roanoke, Virginia, which is a small, historically uh, women's college. Um, in 2019, I had a baby and I'm married to another academic who got a job elsewhere. Um, And I was like, you know, sleep deprived and about to leave the life of the mind. I thought maybe forever. I had no idea. Uh, So this is a story I have never told on Books Network. Nobody ever asked. But I saw that they were looking for a volunteer copy editor. And this is true and maybe a little embarrassing. And I thought, and so I just, I emailed my CV. And the um, editor-in-chief, or he was the executive editor he was the executive editor at the time, I think. Uh, his name is Boris. And he got back to me and he said, I think you're a little overqualified with a PhD in film studies to be the volunteer copy editor. Uh, so I got involved working for a few months volunteering on film coverage. And when the film editor job opened up, I was positioned to move into it. And that's how I became uh, the film editor at the Los Angeles Review of Books, which I don't know what it says about this particular institution, but maybe a life lesson to people listening, is if you really love a place, and I loved the LA Review of Books long before I wrote for it, long before I worked for it, I assigned pieces from it, I regularly read it, and I was just feeling bold and tired enough to think, I'm just going to ask if they need me. Uh, And that was how I got involved. And I've, I've, it's a great gig. I like it a lot. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't mention this um, at the outset. I'm. I'm. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and I remember when I 
when I first uh, got my like license and started driving, I would listen to like KCRW and KXLU. And I'm pretty sure that's how I discovered LRU books through hearing uh, people, contributors talking about uh, different articles. And I always felt that, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, that it wasn't a place, you know, for, uh, you know, to maybe take your term, Annie, it wasn't really a place for, for the life of the mind that I always felt like that review of books was like this kind of intellectual beacon uh, in this uh, city uh, that, you know, can be sometimes a little superficial. So I, I was wondering, you know, Michelle, if maybe you would talk a little bit about, you know, the kind of the intellectual community that the Elliot Review of Books fosters, you know, the different types of people uh, that that write that that write for the Elliot Review of Books and, uh, you know, just some of the, the kind of perspectives that you guys try and cultivate. Well, a story I tell all the time is that um, in 2016, when I had recently started as a section editor and had been a contributor for a little bit, um, when the election of November 2016 happened, a bunch of LA Review of Books contributors and editors got together at Skylight Books, which is one of our local independent bookstores, and we all read pieces. That was kind of what we were thinking about. Um, I read a piece about my neighbors and um, my my dad's memories of Japanese internment camps, and it was just a really intense but really beautiful community moment of people who cared about books and letters in the city of Los Angeles and all of our communities here that felt threatened by that particular moment in history, um, coming together in an independent bookstore and reading pieces, most of which were in some way on the site or connected to the site. So that to me really crystallized what the LA Review of Books can do. And then of course the LA Review of Books has all, all kinds of public programming that, um, bring people together in different ways and kind of at different, um, yeah, different, different entrees into different communities. So, um, on the site right now, there's a great interview with Percival Everett, who is an author who will be receiving a lifetime achievement award in a couple of weeks at one of our bigger fundraising events for the Ellie review books. We are a volunteer nonprofit volunteer supported and donor supported organization. So those kind of things matter a lot. But we also have um, bigger, much more kind of scrappy <laughs> launch parties uh, for the quarterly journal and other types of events, cocktails and conversation with editors, with writers, and then events at bookstores. Um, so yeah, we're always looking for new ways to partner with different aspects of the community here in Los Angeles, but it's a big part of what we do. Yeah, I love that you, you mentioned um... Uh, some LA bookstores. Do you have a favorite favorite bookstore in Los Angeles? Sorry, this is a question that won't won't, won't nobody right. care about, but like seven people. I know I probably shouldn't choose a favorite. <laughs> if I could stop one anybody, but I've been going to Skylight for years, and Stories is also really close to my house. Um, and yeah, we have we have a lot of connections to both of those, but they're all great. Tavalier, um yeah, all of them. Book soup. I love book soup. That was probably my favorite. Yeah, or I haven't been in forever, but <laughs> what I remember of it, that's great. Um, yeah, you, you you talked a little bit before about your your previous role of, about being the, the economics editor. What what does that look like? What is being a section editor? And then also Annie, uh, after Michelle, I'd love to hear what it's like being a section editor and how you kind of go about choosing the articles and connecting with different writers. The magazine was built with a lot of um, yes and energy from our from our founder, Tom Lutz, and um, a lot of people were, our masthead is like 
six pages long. Um, and the people who are still doing this with us and, and working regularly, it's a, it, it looks pretty different from section to section, but everyone is working in, a, in an area where they have expertise and just a passion for the topic. And for me, economics and finance, I was doing research, writing a dissertation, thinking about critical finance. And that's how I ended I My book project, which has been paused as a kick on the rule, um, is about behavioral economics and how it affects American popular discourse. So, yeah, I come at I come at economics and finance obliquely, um, but I think that's what I meant by heterodox. I think a lot of the folks who are coming at these different topic areas, they they have their their passions and their interests, and then they're looking for writers who have a slightly different set or come at it from yet another perspective. So, yeah, Annie, what what would you say about how things are now? <laughs> Well, I really try to work with a lot of different writers as, as much as I love the writers that I, that, you know, the the um, repeat visitors. I do try to spread the wealth a little bit, uh, as you'll note, uh, because I just um, because there are some of the writers for the Los Angeles Review of Books are professors at every level. Some of them are journalists. Some are just starting out in their writing careers and other people are sort of trying out something new or returning to a very familiar form for them. Um, I will say, if people are curious about how I pick things, I will say that I'm not usually looking for, you know, the LA Review of Books is not the LA Times. They do get some confusing pitches to that effect. I'm not, there are not like big movies that I feel like we need to cover. I'm really primarily interested in the point of view that an author can bring to a film or a book about film or a review sort of omnibus that combines different um, different works. So for me, the primary thing I'm looking for is is um, a take that I don't think that someone else is going to have and a voice that I feel like is individual and unique and interesting. Um, so uh, I personally work a lot on gender and popular culture, and so I'm attracted to projects. I've commissioned great work from um, Maggie Hennefeld at the University of Minnesota, who works on early cinema and feminism and abjection and all kinds of things like that. But then I also, uh, the number one piece, meaning the most read right now on uh, the site, is Ethan Warren's piece about um, the band. Which, when he first told me, when he told me, meaning that when he emailed and pitched me it, it was sort of an Abbott Costello like, like what's the band called? The band. It turns out there's a band called the band, which then I had to go learn about so that I could um, sort of guide him through the process. But he came with a lot of knowledge, and sometimes I don't know if you'll find this, Michelle. Sometimes having a certain amount of knowledge, but not too much, helps you to be an editor who doesn't put too much of their own opinion. I had no opinion on Robbie Robertson. I was ready for whatever he had to say about him. Um, I was protective of him, and I also wasn't, like, you know, holding a grudge against this person I didn't really know about. But then, yeah, anyway, once you tell me what the songs are, I sort of know. Uh, so <laughs> that's how my music is. Well, oh, that. Okay. Yeah, I don't want to curse you know if they're grudges. Sometimes that's what you want to do, but I do think... Um, you're know, making clear we don't publish straight reviews of recent releases. That's not where we come from. 
but um Annie's friend and mine, uh JD Connor, has a piece about the way of water, the the avatar re-release that's really about why the franchise is doing what it's doing now and how the landscape is changing in the world of franchises. Um, he talks about what he does writing about film as looking at the art, the industry, and the experience at the same time, how they intersect. And I find that really helpful when I'm thinking about what we're up to. Um, you know, we're never going to do red carpet coverage, right? But like the kind of thing that Amy's talking about, you know, this is about the band. Yeah perfect exactly in the box of the kind of thing that we do and then of course books about film are also within our purview yes i used to say i don't i don't commission things that are see it or don't see it read it or don't read it but i think that um over time i've also graduated to i'm not really looking for x is overrated or underrated because I always feel like Twitter beats us to that every time where if you want to say this film that everyone says is great is actually very problematic or this thing that you would think is really problem you know this action film is actually the most like eye-opening anti-capitalist treatise of all time and you're like eventually we're never like by the time we get it through copy editing and I get it on the roster like Someone on Twitter will have already said it. So I really am looking Did you get a lot of those for Avatar? For me that... <laughs> I... <laughs> no, 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 we didn't. No, no, I think they would have come to me and, and I actually didn't. Um, but yeah, so finding a point of view that I feel like a lot of... That's one major piece of advice I would give to people who pitch here or anywhere, which is why are you the person to write this? And like, what is the thing you're going to bring that will be unique? And I, I do think that a cross-section only review of books is interested in finding that unique take that isn't necessarily getting into the fray. Yeah, so I was just going to agree with Annie that the the kind of straight reviews are not generally what we're looking for. We're looking for a strong take. Although if we're going to err on the side of one type of review or another, it's going to be on the why we should read it. Why should we care about this book, about this film, about this cultural event that's happening? Um, and again, never we're never going to do red carpet coverage, but we're always going to be interested in why people are obsessed with that particular thing, why they're why they've gone deep into some particular subculture or another. Um, and even uh, so, recently we published a piece by Michael Moranza about uh, Julia Schleck's book *Dirty Knowledge*, which had come out a while ago, but that was very topical because of the strikes um, at the UCs. And so that's, that also did quite well on the site um, and very much in the pocket of the kind of thing that we're interested in at the LA Review. If you like celebrity coverage, you have to check out Philippa Snow's pieces on Britney Spears, Megan Fox, Kaylee Cuoco. Really, really fun, really smart. Yeah, that, that sounds that's definitely sounds interesting. I would love to to hear hear about that, what Britney Spears is, is up to because I just, you know, Twitter... Like you said, tw- Twitter just has uh, the takes, the kind of the obvious takes on everything. So it's not very fun. <laughs> um, I don't even have Twitter anymore, but uh, that's besides Yeah. Uh, we have a writer and a friend of the LA Review who's working on a book about Britney Spears. Although I'm not sure I'm supposed to out him yet. So okay, well, hold that space. <laughs> yeah, nobody nobody will know uh, who it is. I'm sure that, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
both, you know, the both of you uh, have met, mentioned, you know, working in, in academia, both having having graduate degrees, uh, and then working in a, at a place like the LA Review of Books. Uh, how do you sort of think of, you know, straddling the sort of line between uh, magazine, uh, literary criticism, uh, et cetera, whatever you know, whatever you, whatever you might call it, uh, versus more academic oriented research? How do you how do you think about, uh, you know, what what what's the best way to to do that, and and who are the audiences that you're trying to reach? Well, I I can't say that the LA Review of Books really opened up a new space in the relationship between academia and public facing writing and cultural coverage. And I think that the space has gotten a lot more crowded since we started doing it, but I think we were one of the early adopters who really did it well. And there's a way that I think that part of what we're doing and what we're doing well is helping academic writers reach a wider audience in a kind of like just a fun and open way. And one of the things I do is work with academic writers on pulling back a little on the jargon and making sure that we're opening with something that's going to grab the reader in perhaps a different way. It doesn't have to be an intervention in exactly the way that you would make academic writing work, but it's still for readers who are probably well-educated, interested in what you've got to say and, and ready to read something a little different from what they've gotten in legacy media before. I think it's something we do really well, and I'm really excited to keep that aspect of what we do. Well, for me, I think that starting to write for LA Review of Books and places like it really, I I would say for me, it helped me to reconnect with why I had gotten into academia in the first place. Because I think sometimes when you're trying to construct these scholarly arguments, the, the why of it is usually something about this fills a gap in the existing literature. There's a there's a hole in the field and like I am analyzing what has been underanalyzed. But when you get underneath that, you have to sort of to write, I think, for the public, you have to do something like, why is there a field? Why does anyone even look at this in the first place? And getting to do that. And I sort of started at LA Review of Books at the same time that I was revising my dissertation into a book. It really helped me to sort of become re-enchanted with the process because I was thinking a lot about, okay, well, how will I tell this to people who are not doing a book, who are not like, you know, academics who feel the need to write a book for the, or to publish articles to sort of fill out, to fill the steps and to to contribute to a very particular disciplinary conversation, but to really enjoy. And it sounds silly when you work on movies and TV to say that like you might lose track of the fun, but you really, no matter what you study, you can, you can sort of lose touch with like, why did you study this in the first place? Why did you pick this? What is really at, at heart for the field? Um, so about a year into working at the LA Review of Books, I wrote a piece about some Netflix rom-coms while in, uh, under lock, COVID lockdown. And I was, I was, I'm plugging my own writing. I can't help it, but this is my, this is my story of like, I, there's um one of the movies I review is called, I'm thinking of ending things where there's like a voiceover. And so I put a voiceover into the piece. Like I am speaking in italics and a voiceover through the piece. And I would never be able to do that except at a place that's interested in sort of the merging of the critical and the creative, uh, and to be able to play with things like that and not have to explain what you're doing, but just really show what you're doing. I was like, oh, I'm never going back. I'm going to keep doing this. Um, 
And I hope that other writers have that experience when they work with us. I think I'm never going to, I'm never, not to say I'm never going to go back to other forms of writing I have, but that you're, you're not going to want to lose that part of your creative life, creative, critical life. Once you see how liberating and exciting it can be and what discoveries you can make. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I can I can plug my own writing too. I, the the piece that I wrote right before um, Tom Letts and Boris asked me to be economics and finance editor was about Anna Hornblue's book, Realizing Capital and Lee Claire LeBerge's Scandals and Abstractions. And I opened the piece thinking about Jamie Dimon and the way he talks to Elizabeth Warren, and then really brought that into thinking about what we talk about when we talk about finance, which was the name of the piece, and. It's true. I never went back. I never went back to, um, well, I'm, not, I'm not sure I was ever there. And I was kind of always a public facing writer. <laughs> if, if so, I, I, in a way, I've never been both feet in either world. But um, that piece put me in conversation with a group of interdisciplinary scholars that I don't think I would have been in contact with except for the LA Review of Books. And then I was able to kind of stay in contact with a whole different group of people by editing economics and finance. Um, so I think it's exciting and at its best, you know, this is, this is the intellectual conversation writ large that we came to academia for and that austerity measures and so many venues have made harder and harder. Uh, but we're still, we're still hosting that conversation over here. Uh, Michelle, I'd love to hear, you know, about about your role as editor in chief. Uh, what that sort of looks like day to day. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's different every single day. Uh, but you know, what what is what is it like being an editor in chief? What do you, what do you do? Uh, <laughs> what, what's life like? Well, I've I've only been in this what three weeks now. <laughs> at the our office. first three weeks, been then. It's changing every day. Um, but I will say that. There was a kind of long semester where I was getting ready for the transition. And in that long semester where I was running a program and trying to do right by a number of different stakeholders. Um, and during that, I was just really looking forward to the part where I get to work with writers and just think about what's going to be on the site. And as soon as I hit the ground and got to start doing that work, it was as, exactly as good as I thought it was going to be. I really enjoy working with writers. Um, I enjoy developmental editing. I know that there are people who understand editing as a kind of gatekeeping role, and we we definitely have to do some gatekeeping. That is part of running a magazine. But because of kind of the network of editors and some of the big tent that we have, um, I'm able to do a kind of developmental editing with people that I just find really exciting. So I'm super excited to kind of continue figuring out our editorial processes and making them all make sense for me going forward. I am trying to get my arms around an editorial pipeline that is probably uh, just a little bit uh, wider than it would be in a different kind of publication. Um, but that's all happening. We've got an amazing team. I get to work with amazing people like Annie and then the whole core staff in the Elmerizu Books offices. Our offices are in this historic landmark called the Crossroads of the World, which has just deep in LA history. And our copy desk chief knows all about like all of the millionaires who are rented here and where Hitchcock has his offices there and like the P 
pizza shop that was also a record label. It's really amazing. Um, and so I'm very, like, I'm in the city, I'm in the texture of the city, I'm working with amazing writers, and um, for me, it feels like living the dream. But it's also a lot of reading. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it's probably more reading than, than any person could, could normally, could normally handle. You, you both have already uh, talked a little bit about, you know, uh, some of your own writing and, and other articles, but I was wondering if, there, if there's, you know, anything else that has appeared uh, you know, in the magazine or on the website recently that uh, you want to talk about that, you know, for, for readers who want to go and, and, and read something and, and get a taste, uh, you know, maybe an article or two that they should check out. I had, I did just talk about um, my brand, the Dirty Knowledge. Dear TV's got a piece up today on Muslim lives on American television. That's great. Uh, we also recently published a piece on ugly cats that I'm obsessed with. And, um, I just, the other piece that I just published was about Annie Duke and her book quitting on quitting and thinking about optimal quitting and flexibility in the labor force. I would also send anybody to Paul Thompson's QJ piece about Nope, which I really enjoyed film, but in the, in the film mix, um, yeah, come, come on down to the site and wade into one of the sections that you're interested in. <laughs> Oh, in the the quarterly journal, the next issue, the theme is fire. We're doing elements this year. So each issue is air, fire, water, earth. So the next one will be fire and we'll be thinking about all kinds of different ways that that relates to the city of Los Angeles and beyond. That will sadly be very easy probably for, for, <laughs> for LA. Uh, Annie, how about you? Is there any anything in particular? Oh, not to be a cliche, but I feel like you're asking me, like, who's my favorite child or something. I know. <laughs> I'm looking at this. I'm looking at, like, what's come out recently. Um, I think that Greta Rainbow's recent piece about Joanna Hogg and the Eternal Daughter uh, and thinking about the filmmaker as an archivist has resonated with a lot of sort of academic and popular readerships. Um, and... Uh, Regular contributor Ryan Coleman wrote about women talking and atrocity. It's a tough read about a tough film, but um, uh, it really, I think it's very powerful. And what I've been hearing from readers, because we get some sort of responses and they've all been having, you know, like that it's, it is, that, that I'm right, that it is a very powerful read and that um, I'm looking here. Um, I mean, it was really exciting for me to get to work with uh, Jay Hoberman on a recent uh, review of Ruth Beckerman's film, Mutzenbacher, which I was, if you told me I was going to try to speak German on this interview, I, if you could tell me, I would have been like, no way, there's no way I'm going to be doing that. But here I am. Uh, there's just, there's a lot. I think, honestly, I'm proud of every piece that I work with writers um, to bring to the world like Michelle I really really enjoy developmental editing um I love learning about new things from writers I love bringing my own experience they teach me a ton and um I know that it's it's actually very hard to get someone to pay attention to your writing and really give it a lot of care and a really close look uh without paying them um but they don't have to pay me I do it 
I don't do it for free. But um, to get that developmental service, I I love when people look at my writing so closely, and I hope that they appreciate it too because because I love doing it. My my last question uh, is it, Michelle, you already mentioned about the you know the plan for for this year with the the uh, the, the elements uh, for the magazine, but but is there is there anything else? Uh, any other kind of other ideas or plans. Uh, I know that there's also, you know, New Books Network is a podcast network. Uh, I know that the the LA Review of Books has a as a as a radio hour. Um, you know, anything else besides the the magazine that you, you're working on, or other big big plans, big ideas, big hopes and dreams for five, ten, fifteen, thirty years down the line. Oh man, I mean, I have lots of big plans and ideas for the five to ten range. Um, for this year. We do have the radio hour going strong, um, and we are hoping to do a, an event to honor Mike Davis in the spring, uh, who was uh, very important to many, many people who are associated with the LA Review of Books. We are, again, looking to the, the Percival Everett Lifetime Achievement Award, award and we have another um, couple big events that will happen in the next year. And then that the elements are the quarterly journal. So I'm starting to think about what the next themes for the quarterly journal will be after that. And to really make sure that those are, uh, that there's just synergy between that and the site and everything that's happening across our different outlets. Um, we have the publishing workshop that's going to happen again this summer, uh, which is people being coming together through the LA Review Books to think about what publishing is going to look like in the future. And I can't really, I can't really promise everything right now, but I am really thinking about what is media going to look like as social media changes. All of us, all podcast magazines, we're all getting less traffic from social media. Twitter's broken. Um, and so I'm really trying to think about how do we, amplify our signal across different feeds how do we think about media partnerships differently um how do we make sure that we're keeping this conversation alive in new and creative ways yeah i mean i i think yeah the, this problem you point to especially with social media just imploding uh you know yeah it's definitely definitely a concern um but you know i yeah la review of books i yeah i think i've been you know, I don't know. It's kind of funny. LA Review Books really, honestly, especially the, the, the LARB radio hour was like very important uh, for me in high school because I felt like I just felt like there was. That's so funny. I felt like LA, growing up in LA, it's just it does not feel like a like there's community, like there's intellectual community out there. And I think that the LA Review Books really does a, just a great job of, you know, along with some other, you know, great LA institutions like KXLU. Um, does just a great job of kind of cultivating that. Uh, well, Michelle and Annie, thank you so much for for being guests on the New Books Network. Uh, it was it was great speaking with with both of you. Uh, and yeah, people should should go and, and check out the LA Review of Books. Uh, you know, you, you could easily find it with a, with a search. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. No paywall on the LA Review of Books. So you should yeah, come read. More than to know. Come read. See what's here. Read, listen, participate, yeah. support us. <laughs> Yeah, go donate and become a member. Subscribe. Get a t-shirt and and all that stuff. Oh, and a tote bag. We have some great totes right now. Go see our totes. Chapter one, totes. Well, yeah, I'll definitely go get mine. Yeah. Of course.
Lifted him. Okay. 